Let's open up our Bibles to John, John chapter 15. I'm afraid that I've thrown things sort of out of, out of sorts. Um, last night, preaching a message I hadn't intended to preach. We're going to speak about planting churches in hard places, but I'm going to sort of adapt it to some of the things also that I wanted to say last night. I want us to turn in the book of John, chapter 15, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus said in verse 1, I am the vine. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may be bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Let's go down to verse 16. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would not be grieved. that Christ would be honored, that your people would be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Preaching the gospel in hard places, that would call for an exposition of how to do certain things when the going gets tough. It seems that we're all about discovering where we're supposed to go and then studying the situation and studying the place and looking at all the difficulties and then trying to figure out just how to do the gospel in that specific setting, how to preach the gospel to that specific people. I would submit to you 
that if we would concentrate more on our relationship with God, if we would truly become men and women of God, we wouldn't have to concern ourselves so much with all the other secondary things. Some of you have been called of God to plant a church. Whether you've been called to plant a church or not, you have been called to be in the Great Commission. As I always say, you're either called to go down into the well or to hold the rope for those who go down. And either way, your hands are going to be scarred. You are not going to be an obedient Christian without scarred hands. So you're either planting a church or you are helping men plant churches whether it be here or abroad. It seems that Christianity has gotten totally out of hand with all our studies and demographics and all our statistics. I would submit to you that those are mostly disciplines of little boys who do not know God. I want to turn you not to certain difficulties to look at them and study them and learn how to maneuver around them. I want to turn you 180 degrees, 180 degrees and tell you that if you will know Him and abide in Him, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Now, we have three entities in this parable. We have the true vine which represents Christ. We have the vine dresser who represents the father. And we have the branches that represent the believer as an individual and the church collectively. Now, here's some of the things that we're going to learn from this. And I'm going to be reading off of my notes because I want to make sure I don't miss anything. First of all, we're going to learn that Christ is the vine. Now, don't patronize this. He is the source of all Christian life. And don't tell me you believe this. Unless your life is marked by meditation upon the Word and your knees are marked by prayer. Don't tell me you believe this. Don't nod your head theologically unless it is a reality. Secondly, that the Christian individually and the church collectively cannot grow or bear fruit apart from being engrafted into the vine through regeneration. The Christian life begins with a supernatural recreating work of the Spirit of God. So regeneration is required and then an abiding in the vine. A life of growing dependence upon Christ which leads to a strong grabbing hold of the Word and not letting go. And again, a life of prayer. Another thing that we're going to learn is that the Father is the vine dresser. And I want you to listen to this part because it is, it is important. He is the sovereign designer of the branches. The believer has only one sovereign designer and the church 
has only one sovereign designer. He is not only absolutely sovereign with regard to the pruning of the branches, but he is absolutely sovereign over the trellis or structure upon which the branches grow. There is only one sovereign architect of the garden, and it is God. And no man has a right to erect any trellis to change the shape of the vine, to change the shape of the branches. God is the one who produces life in us. And God is also the one who has designed and will design the way we will grow. And he does it either by our submission to the word of God or by our discipline. So much of what's called the church today is not the church. So I don't even have to deal with it. But even among people who truly trust in Christ, it seems as though their collective gatherings have mutated themselves into all sorts of shapes that were were never prescribed in the Word of God. God has a trellis. Its design is the Scriptures. And if you are to go out and tend to branches in the name of the vine, you need to go into Scripture and submit yourself to Scripture and build that trellis only according to what God has said and what God permits. Now, Another thing I want to say, that Christianity is not mechanical, but organic. Individual growth is not the result of self-will or the strength of human discipline. When Jesus says that the violent enter into the kingdom, so many people have this idea that this man with this John Wayne's sort of self-discipline and zeal and and strength of will that he, he himself busts through in all his strength and he enters into the kingdom. That's not what that means at all. Here's what it means. Take the three strongest men in this building right now. Well, take the three weakest men in this building right now and I'm sure that they could put me down on the floor in a good fight. Now, it may be something they'll never forget, but I am sure that they can put me down on the floor in a good fight. I am very weak. But there's another sense in which you take the three strongest men in this building, including Brother Vody, and there is a sense in which I could kill all three of them. You just have to change the situation. You put me out in a body of water where I am drowning and I am going down for the last time and I am frantic, I am completely out of my mind in fear and you send the three biggest men after me to save me, there's a good chance I'll drown them all. It wasn't my strength of will. It was my desperation. And that's what Christ means when he's talking about the violent entering in. 
and the violent accomplishing things in the kingdom. They're not great men of strong power. They are desperately weak men, so weak that they become violent in holding on to Christ and violent in holding on to His Word and violent in prayer because they know that apart from Him and apart from those things, they have nothing. If only we would learn that, then God would use us. Church growth is not the result of creative leadership. Complex organizational structures are impressive events. Now I want to quote D.A. Carson here. The growth of which Jesus speaks is not the inorganic growth of external accretion like the growth of an alum crystal in an alum solution. It is organic growth, internal growth, driven by the pulsating life of the vine in the branch. Do you see that? It is all about Christ, and it is all about a relationship with Christ. And if you are going to be church planters, if you are going to be elders, you must abide in the vine through meditation upon the Word of God and through prayer, and you must lead the church into that sort of dependence. He says, only this kind, only this kind of growth produces fruit. Now listen, the Christian or Christian organization that expands by external accretion, now listen, that merely apes, apes, Christian conduct and witness, but is not impelled by life within, brings forth dead crystals and not fruit. All of you who are deciding that God is calling you to plant a church, I recommend that you get D.A. Carson's commentary on the book of John and you read through chapter 15. It is absolutely marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. Also, I've written here that the Christian life cannot be and some of you really need to hear this, cannot be exhaustively described in terms of knowledge, obedience, strict morality, separation, dedication to a cause, or even sacrificial service, but must include a vital and personal relationship with Christ in the Word of God and prayer. Growing dependence upon Christ and yielding to the Father's pruning and discipline. This, we are spiritual people if we have been regenerated. And our task is a spiritual task. Gentlemen, we are not businessmen. Or in the words of Dr. Piper, we are not professionals. We are not students of statistics. We are not some sort of religious bureaucrats. We are prophets. We wear a mantle. We dwell with God and we come forth from God. By His strength. It's just, it's just absolutely ridiculous for you to even say that you have not strength to do this. Of course you have not strength to do this. That's never been an issue. The problem is you're not, you're not quite convinced of the words that are coming out of your mouth. But if you belong to Him over the years, I assure you, 
with many hard blows, you will become convinced. Now, the true vine. I'm going to go through this rather quickly. Every, you know every word in chapter 15 is worth a thousand sermons. The true vine. Now, I want you to recognize something. There's a bit of replacement theology going on here. So many people get confused. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the vine. Israel was the servant of Yahweh. But Israel, as we know, failed miserably. I do not want you to think that the church took Israel's place in this matter. I want you to realize this. The Messiah took Israel's place in this matter. That's why he says there was a vine and that vine did not bear fruit and that vine was judged. I am the true vine. Christ is the vine. He is the one that bears fruit for God. And we bear fruit only to the degree that we are connected into that vine. We are the branches. Now, something very important about Christ. In Isaiah 53, 2, listen to this. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Realize this, that when God begins a work, it almost never looks impressive in the eyes of carnal men. And if you go out there thinking that you're going to start a church and you're going to begin the first day with all sorts of advertising and marketing and all sorts of other things to attract carnal men to Jesus, then to hell with the whole lot of it. What you are seeking to create here is something you cannot create, so it requires dependence. But the thing that you are seeking to shape is to be beautiful to God, not lustful, carnal men. Even when he sent the true vine, he began in a form that to carnal men was not stately. It was not beautiful. My dear friend, if you use carnal means to attract carnal men, you will have to continue with carnal men means to keep the carnal men, and they will never change. He started out with very unimpressive beginnings, but ultimately triumphed. A prophecy in Isaiah equally says this, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride in the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It's not their fruit. It's not called the branches fruit. It's the fruit of the vine. You're very fruitful. Uh, my dear friend, it would, better be, it would be better to say that He is fruitful. He is fruitful. And he works through us. Now, the Bible speaks also that the Christian and the church, because it is engrafted into Christ, will also be fruitful. We're doing a study right now in, in the little house church that um, I have one of the house churches there in Virginia. I have about 14 people, and we're doing a study right now on fruitfulness. And what I'm having to do is go through all the passages to actually convince the Christians that it is God's desire for them to be fruitful. 
You, you, in your relationship, oftentimes it's as though you are trying to drag God into something. You're pleading with God to make you something, as though you truly want to be fruitful and He's really not concerned about it. That is not true. Listen to the way the, the Old Testament prophets describe the church. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. One of the reasons why so many so-called church plants and so many Christians are not bearing fruit is because we've become busy doers. Busy doers. Working in the strength of our own flesh. I cannot tell you why. I cannot tell you how. But when a man will give the first part of his day to prayer and the Word of God, things happen. He begins to see things. He begins to hear things. Things begin to happen around him. His life becomes something more than normal. Becomes supernatural. Now, for some of you, it might have been disturbing that I put prayer before the Word. I have a great appreciation for the Word. Upon the Word of God is the foundation of everything that we are to believe and do. But here's what I've discovered about myself. My flesh hates prayer more than it hates the study of God's Word. Because at least in the study of God's Word... I can grow in knowledge and impress people. My flesh likes that. My flesh hates praying. Gentlemen, a bit of advice. You wake up in the morning. You crawl out of bed. You fall on your knees and stay there even if you have to put a clock in front of you for one hour at least. And even if you're looking at the clock every five minutes and hoping the time would go faster, fight, 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 fight until you learn to pray because you will not plant God's church apart from prayer. If you cannot pray, learn to pray. Read every scripture in the Bible regarding prayer and pray, pray, pray until it truly becomes sweet hour of prayer and you're no longer singing a lie. You must be praying men. You must be. You must be. Take root downward. It is His life that must come through you. As I always say when I'm talking to missionaries, missionary conferences, just give me some men that have been mauled that have been ravished by God. You can take the scholars, you can take the rest, but give me men who've been with God. Isaiah 27, 6, In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. What does this tell us? It tells us that not only can the believer and can the church bear fruit, it is supposed to. As we'll see later if we have time, it has been ordained by God that she bear fruit. The church will be fruitful. Now let me say something here very important. 
if you do not get the gospel right, and you do not get regeneration right, and you do not teach men how to have a biblical assurance of salvation, and if you do not teach them how to discover false conversion, then none of this is going to work. Why? I'll tell you why. When I talk about the glorious promises in the Old Testament regarding the fruitfulness of the church and the new covenant, people say, well, it's just not like that. Well, then we have to come to a conclusion. Have the promises failed? So a girl came up to me the other day and she says, I'm just praying because the church is not one. I said, yes, it is. She said, no, how can you say that with all the... I said, the church is one. Because if the church is not one, the father did not answer the son's prayer. He prayed that the church would be one. Church is one. I said, young lady, your problem is you don't know what the church is. When I talk about the beauty and the fruitfulness of the church in America, people look at me and go, how can you speak that way? I say, because it's true. I must stand up on the scriptures. It is true. The church is beautiful. She is fruitful. Though she is broken and though she has to struggle with sin, the true church in America is absolutely gorgeous. You say, how can you say that? I can say that because I know what the church is. The problem is in America, most people are calling the church something that's not the church. Jesus said there would be a multitude of people gathered in his name that had nothing to do with him. The true church is a people. They don't want the noise. They don't want the entertainment. They don't want the fluff. They do not need to be propped up with structures and organizations and events and all sorts of things. They just want Christ. And they love him. And they're broken over their sin and they're seeking to walk with him daily. That's the church. That's the church. Now, when you start your church, Pastor, let me give you a warning. I do not fear for the liberal politician on the day of judgment as I fear for the great multitude of pastors in America, evangelical pastors. And this is why. In almost every church, so-called church that you go into in America, evangelical, you will find a small group of people who are lamenting, who are broken, and who are sad. They're starving. All they want is to hear about Jesus. All they want is simple, clean worship of Christ. All they want is to walk in the commandments. But the pastor has neglected Christ's sheep, his bride, in order to minister to a group of carnal people who do not love God. And so every decision in that church is meant to keep a group of carnal people together who hate God and just want to be entertained and all the while the people of God are starving to death. Fear that. And that church comes together, that church comes together for people who love Christ. Broken, yes. Sinning, yes. Can fall into sin, yes. Cannot stay there. And you start this church, you start a church to minister to God's people. And you do not lower the commands of Scripture in order to make the church 
attractive to carnal men. Let me give you an example. I have a little girl, a little three-year-old. It's the most beautiful girl in the world. I love her. I've got her wrapped around my finger. Let's say I entrust this precious little girl of mine to one of you because I have to go away on a long journey and I will not be back for 15, 20 years. And when I come back, I find my little girl dressed like a tramp. You've painted her eyes. You've dressed her in a sensual fashion. You have done everything in your power to make my little girl attractive, not to godly men, but to lustful, carnal men. I submit to you that that is exactly what many churches in America are doing right now. Many pastors in America, they're taking the church of Jesus Christ, dressing her up like a whore so she will be attractive to carnal people who have never been regenerated of the Holy Spirit. That is exactly what's happening. Brothers, it's terrible. We must stand against that. When you start your church, you reach out to every person. You go to the lowest places. You reach out to the most needy people. But when you come together, it is to feed people who just want Jesus. And you do not lower. You do not lower. Don't dress up your worship. Make it holy. Don't have your sermons full of humor and comedy and quaint sayings and little moral stories. Preach the Word. Love people. Preach the Word. But if they will not come because there's not something more than Jesus in your church, they will not come. So be it. So be it. The church today is beautiful. The church today is beautiful. She is beautiful in America. Don't talk bad about the church. But be a prophet and point out that not everything called the church is the church. And be a prophet and stand up and fight for the church. If my dear wife, this would never happen, but if she went to Walmart at 11 or 12 at night to get something and a group of violent men grabbed a hold of her and you walked by and saw the crime happening and you did nothing out of fear and self-preservation, the next day when I discover the matter, I will hunt down those men. And after I find them, I will come after you. Preachers, we have children to protect. Yes, we're family men. We have wives to protect. Yes, we are husbands. We have a bride to protect. So we preach the truth, live the truth. This is our calling. When I think, that God would entrust a bride to me. 
when you think that he would entrust a bride to you. Oh, what glory! Oh, what terror! You're not so much going out to start a church for him, but he will make you a steward and turn over his bride to you. Tremble. 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 Now, I'm just going to have to pass through about 10 pages of notes. And I want to get to something. I need to talk about the vine dresser. This is very important. I'm going to read from my notes something I've written here. The vine dresser represents the father. Again, who is sovereignly has who sovereignly ordained the branches fruitfulness and growth is constantly working in them to ensure their fruitfulness and has ordained the design of the trellis to which the vine is to conform, which is the word of God. In this garden, there is one sovereign gardener who is very zealous with regard to how the vine and how the branches grow. You are to be in submission to that sovereign designer. And you are only to seek to build that which Scripture gives you to build. You are to be a master craftsman, but you are to realize you have no authority. No authority apart from the Word of God. Now, I want to point out some unbiblical emphasis that you need to avoid whenever you're talking about planting a church. First of all, that it is man-centered rather than God-centered. A Christianity, a church, and a God that are ultimately for man. Do not do that even in the name of evangelism. Most of the heresies that we have known in the 20th century, in my opinion, have come from our wrong understanding of conversion and our desire to reach people. So in our desire to reach people, we think that we have a better plan than God and we go outside the Scriptures and when we do, we turn the church of Jesus Christ into a six flags over Jesus. An entertainment, an amusement park for carnal men. We must hold on to Scripture and God must be the emphasis. Listen, when you go to the mission field or when you go to plant a church somewhere, you have this idea that you're going to come into town and you're going to preach the gospel and 3,000 people are going to be saved and then they're all going to pick you up on their shoulders and carry you around the town plaza screaming out hallelujah. That may happen, but it is quite doubtful. I'll tell you what's going to happen. You walk into that plaza with your little microphone in your tracks, your New Testaments. You're going to start preaching. People are going to listen for a while and then someone's going to scream out that you're a demon and a heretic and they're going to grab you and they're going to throw you out in the street. It's going to take a lot more than a romantic love for men to put you back on your feet again, walking into that park again and preaching the gospel again. You're going to have to do it for God. You're going to have to do it for Him. My favorite human quote from those two Moravian boys who sold themselves into slavery so that they could go witness to a group of slaves 
And when their boat was leaving the dock, they looked back arm in arm, two boys, they looked back arm in arm at their parents that were weeping, and they said, shall not the lamb have the full reward for his suffering? That's why you go in. That's why you plant a church. You do it for him. You do it for him. And then every person that is gathered to him and becomes part of the bride, you die for them because they belong to him. They are precious to you because they're precious to him. Was it a training thing for some missionaries a few years ago? And one young man said that he stood up fine, fine young man. And he said this, he said, I said, now, what are you about? What are you going to be doing? He says, well, I'm going to plant a church in order to, in this city, in order to plant a church in this. I said, stop. I said, no. You're telling me you're going to plant a church, and then from that church, you're going to plant another church and use that church to plant more churches. I said, young man, you plant a church because you love the people that are going to come to it. If you're going out to plant a church so that you can plant another church and start some sort of a movement, I'll tell you what you're doing. You've got a vision, and you're going to use God's people in order to see it through. No. You plant a church, and don't call yourself a pastor unless you're going to pastor. And then from that, God's. If it is organic, if it is engrafted into the vine, God will multiply the work. Never use God's people in order to fulfill some vision you think God has given you. You start a church because you love people. And do you think it's a small thing to pastor 50 people? You have a greater position than all the kings combined. He does not trust his bride to governments or corporations and CEOs. He entrusts his bride to a man, hopefully a group of men, who are in one way never content because they want to see the kingdom advancing, but in another way they are completely content in the will of God. They will not seek great things for themselves. They will simply seek to be obedient. Obedient. Another unbiblical emphasis. Choosing cultural directives over biblical mandates. Discerning what is relevant in culture and then adapting Christianity, the church, and God to that culture rather than discerning God's will, conforming the church to God's will, and calling for culture's absolute submission to God's will. You don't go into a culture and find out what it wants and then adapt the church to that culture. That is the great problem today with the so-called men of God of our time. They go to the people to find out what they want to hear instead of going to God to find out what He wants to say. They go to the people to find out what they want in a church. Instead, they should be going to God to find out what He wants in a bride. What do you want, Lord? 
Three, meeting felt needs rather than leading people away from being self-absorbed and self-consumed. Listen to an interview with a pastor whose church grew to a mighty 10,000 and someone asked him, well, how, what, how do you, you know, what's the reason for the great growth? He says, we just meet people's needs. Now that sounded absolutely wonderful, but there wasn't a biblical syllable in that sentence. We are to make disciples, not to create some socialistic program. A church meets one another's needs, but a church is not about getting your felt needs met. The more we cater to that, the more people will be self-consumed. They'll cannibalize themselves. We teach men to grow beyond their need, to look to Christ. And to find in Him everything. Number four, encouraging self-realization and self-promotion rather than development of a disinterest in self, a zeal for the promotion of the glory of God and the benefit of others. This is not about your best life now. It's not. That's heresy. It's not just a quaint saying. It's heretical. And yet... It is about your best life. To find it by losing it for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the name. In the 30 years of walking with Christ, I have not regretted anything I have given to Him. I have regretted so many things I have kept for self. My greatest moments of joy, and you can testify to this yourself, have been the moments when you have settled in a contentment and your, your attitude can be described towards self as one of disinterest. To be free from self-consumption and to be given wholly to Christ and Christ's people. To be poured out like a drink offering. Someone says, you always look tired. Yes. That's, there are times for resting. But man, we are at war. Not a time to gather things as Jeremiah had to tell his scribe. It is not a time for thinking about glories without challenges or sufferings. This is a time to fight to give, to pour out, and in that to find the greatest joy. Young men, that your strength will be spent for Christ. Young women, that your beauty fade in the physical and grow in the spiritual as you pour out life and limb for Him. There is a way to have your best life possible is submission to Jesus Christ and being a servant here's another unbiblical emphasis giving the people entertainment rather than confronting them with eternal realities these circus clown preachers 
with the hair and the glasses and everything else that goes with the package to make them look relevant and cool and everything else. Foolish little boys playing marbles with God's diamonds. We're not entertainers. We are to confront men with the reality of eternity. As the one Puritan scribe said that it would be stapled across his eyeballs. That men would see eternity in his eyes. That he would preach always as a dying man to dying men. And preach as though he'd never go to a pulpit again. Another terrible emphasis is when you are quieting the conscience rather than wounding the conscience until repentance is wrought and the conscience is cleansed. Another terrible thing to do in the planting of churches, and I've seen this all over. You just have to go to the website. Now listen very carefully. The website of these churches, now just for a moment, think. It is an unbiblical emphasis when you are promoting your Christian community rather than Christ and His gospel. When community is the drawing card, happy faces on a website, and the members draw what they need from the community with little relationship to Christ, a great and dangerous detour has been made. Go to these websites. It's all about community and what you can receive from community. Why do they do that? Because community is not scandalous. Community is wonderful. Come be a part of us. You come be a part of us, you will go to hell. You must come and be engrafted into the vine through the scandalous gospel of Jesus Christ. I was with my dear friend Conrad Mbewe a few months ago in, in Europe, and he said something that was just, it. oh, I love listening to that guy preach. And he was talking to a group of church planners, and he was talking about all the things that we Americans do, and he always does that with this sarcastical smile, sarcastic smile. He said, all the things that Americans do to plant churches. And he said, this is what the Apostle Paul did when he went to plant a church in the Roman Greco world. He took a great big sign about this big and he wrote the most scandalous, horrible, foolish thing on it he could possibly write, Christ crucified, and he walked up and down the street saying, repent and believe the gospel. My dear friend, let's just get it out in the open. We're all about Christ. We trust in Him alone. Not a Savior, but the Savior. The only Savior. And He died because men are radically depraved and under the judgment of Almighty God. And that men are saved not by praying a prayer, but by repenting of their sins and believing the gospel. And the evidence of their conversion is not that some ecclesiastical authority told them they were saved because they repeated a prayer. The evidence is fruitfulness and the continuing work of God's providence in their life through sanctification. We have a scandalous message. I was in Indonesia just a few months ago, and I was talking to a, a leader in the underground church, and this is what he said. The American missionaries, they come over here and they just lie to people. 
They say they're going to build fish farms and, uh, and start small businesses. They say nothing about Christ, and they let them in, and no one persecutes them. He goes, we are different. We walk into town, controlled by the Muslims, and we say, we are Christians, and we preach Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. And they try to kill us. They hate us. They try to run us out of town. But gradually, the wall between us comes falling down because they see our life and they hear the power of the gospel. I don't believe that we should try to be against culture. I don't believe that we should try to dress in such a way that we stand out as strange among our people. Do not dress like a Puritan. Why? They lived a long time ago. Look like your culture except where your culture contradicts the Scriptures. Now, I'll add this. There are a lot of places where our culture contradicts the Scriptures. But don't go out and plant a church and rejoice in what you call a holy martyrdom because you're saying that people don't come to your church because you you preach the truth. I want to tell you, I've been to some of these churches. No, people don't come to your church because you're weird. You got serious problems. <laughs> Just be simple. Let me just give you a rule. Beauty and elegance, even refinement, are not bad words. Simplicity is a good word. Sensuality, extravagance, and luxury are wrong. Just stay in between those lines and you'll be doing pretty well. My dear friend, we must be separate from the world, but we must not think of starting some colony We must be completely different from the world. But make sure it's the gospel that is your scandal and not some strange idea you have in your head about holiness. And make sure that even if your doctrine of holiness is correct, make sure that that doctrine never overrides love and keeps you from going. You know, guys, every time, every time I see a precious little 14, 15, 16-year-old girl with purple hair and tattoos on her forehead and spikes through her nose and leather and boots and chains and all the things that go with it. Just look at her like she was your daughter. And that somehow she was estranged from you. And that you finally found her love her. Love them. Some people have come telling me how I ought to start a church and ought to do this and ought to do that and and ought to be really strict here and really strict there. And I always ask them this question. Okay, in all of this, how do I reach the guy with 16 earrings in his ear? 
Because if your way of doing church won't allow me to do that, I'm not adopting your way of church. Yes, I want my children to be separate from the world. Yes, I want to protect their innocence and all sorts of things. But I have been called to go out into the world and not just love my family, but love the world. And the worst, where would you be right now? If Christ had not come into your life, I would either be a suicidal drunk or I would be in hell because I'd already taken my life. You see, brothers, yes, we need to do church differently, but don't do it so differently according to your personal whims. Do it according to the Scriptures. And when you even do it according to the Scriptures, don't lock out the people who most need what you have. Oh, man, just love them all. Get them all in there. That's why Charles Spurgeon is my favorite preacher of all time. Oh, Lord, save the elect and elect some more. <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted them all saved. And there's nowhere in the Bible where I read that can't happen in my generation. Now I'm going to, I want to say one last thing very quickly. The brother touched on it last night in a, in a beautiful way. God spent so much time building that trellis in the Old Testament. And he warned Moses, the writer of Hebrews tells us, to be careful. We're not working with a temple. We're working with branches. We're working with children of God. We're working with the bride of Christ. You have no right. Listen, I just, at worst, we haven't even hardly started. We just have a group in Virginia. But I love the Lord, but I've come out of so much all my life. My Christianity has been a revolving around structures and programs and events and this and that. And you say you want to be free of it and you're going to go out and do something different. Brothers, you don't know how quickly you can fall back into the same thing again. It's so hard to believe that Christianity can actually be this simple. But let me just show you how bad it has gotten. If I were to walk into most churches today, even good, solid churches, and say, how many of you men are discipling, pouring your lives into your wives? How many of you men are pouring your lives into your teenagers and your children, washing them with the word, discipling them, the primary peer, the primary influence in their life, working constantly in prayer and the word for your children? If no one raised their hand, and honestly, in most churches, very few would raise their hand. No one would be scandalized. No one. But if I made the suggestion that they should dismantle their youth group and their Sunday school, 
they would grab me and throw me out the door and would be so scandalized that I did not care about children. Now think about that. And yet, God commanded, God commanded men to wash their wives in the Word. God commanded men to disciple their children. Do you see how we can create a tradition and that tradition in the end has more force than the commandments of God, even annulling the commandments of God? Gentlemen, you go to this book and yes, there will be differences in our opinions of how far we should go and should not go. Let's not fight about those things. Give to the church what belongs to the church. And give to the family what belongs to the family. Finally, I got through two pages out of ten. I don't even know why I do these kind of things. Men... I've decided I'm going to teach a sermon pretty soon on why men should not practice corporal discipline in the home. I got your attention? (laughs) And this is why. If you are not teaching your children the Word of God, you are not rebuking them with the Word of God, you are not correcting them with the Word of God, and you are not training them in the Word of God, then you have no business doing the last part. You're just like that father whose 16-year-old daughter is going out on a date. He's never invested anything in her life, but when the boy shows up, he opens up his shirt, shows his hairy chest, and cleans his gun to scare the boy. That's just what you are. So if you're going to practice corporal discipline, do all the other stuff. And the same way, you can talk and rail about organizations and youth groups and children's church and everything else. But men, you better back that railing of yours up by having family devotions, by spending individual times with your wife and your children and giving your life to that. It's just like when men come forward and say, I'm a homeschool dad. And I look at them and I say, nope. No, you're not. You're a man married to a homeschool mom. (laughs) You boast about having all these children and you boast about all... I I just had this in me since this morning and I've got to share it. You (laughs) boast about all this stuff and you're prancing around talking to all the men and your wife's just back there just dragging I got this many kids, and how many of them are you investing in? Brothers, all that is good, but what I'm saying, if we're going to dismantle one thing, we better live the life that God commands. If we're going to talk about relationships, we'd better live those relationships. Be careful, lest the next generation say about us, physician, heal thyself. Physician, heal thyself. All right, well, God bless you. Amen.